0: study. Psalm 137. So I'll start with our summary statement here. Psalm 137, vows to remember The promises of God to Israel. And praise for the destruction of Israel's enemies. So let me go over that one more time. Psalm 137 vows to remember the promises of God to Israel. And praise for the destruction of Israel's enemies. All right, a simple outline for the psalm is in two parts verses 1 to 4, crisis complaint, and verses 5 to 9, imprecations. And that comes from a Great old Latin word, not one we use a lot. Imprecations, i m p r e c a t i o n. It essentially is a prayer of a of a curse. Uh, imprecations. So, go over that again. Verses one to four, crisis complaint. And verses five to nine, imprecations. Okay, so we'll go to our observations here. So Psalm 137, it is an anonymous psalm. You can see that there's no superscription. So there's no author attribution um, in, in the text of the psalm or anywhere, and no uh, no significant um, historical tradition as far as authorship is concerned. Um, there's really no musical direction in the psalm, Um, the singing of songs. It it is an important feature of of the psalms, um, but not in the usual way. Um, Now, the occasion for the psalm is actually the exile from Jerusalem and its destruction, and so it seems that this psalm was written very soon after um, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, and you have the mention of Babylon um, throughout. And this reference, as the psalm starts actually to the waters, the canals of, of Babylon, and the hanging of the harps and such, could even be suggesting um, that th- that this was that this is actually the the march uh, essentially from Jerusalem to Babylon. They've arrived at at Babylon, in this. Um, psalm is is written on that occasion. Certainly, could be possible, but it does. It certainly, it seems like that it was soon. Um, it's it's closely connected to that destruction of Jerusalem and that exile to Babylon. To categorize this psalm, I would categorize it primarily as a lament. It's not um, a real typical lament. I think it's most closely. Um, with that psalm type. It's not an exact fit, maybe. Like, for instance, you have direct address prayer, but that doesn't actually happen until verse 7. Usually in a, in a lament, you get a direct address prayer that's, that's um, in the opening of the psalm. Verses 1 to 4 do give you a crisis complaint, and verses 5 to 6 gives a vow to remember, and typically you see some sort of commitment to praise, and that usually comes right at the end um, of the laments. You do get an imprecatory petition in verse number 7. And then you get in verses 8 and 9, which I think is a, is a unique feature um, in the Psalms. It's the only place that this really occurs. You get what I'm calling imprecatory praise, um, which is very strange um, and, and, and very odd uh, mixture there. So again, it, it's, it's not an exact fit of, of typical laments that we have looked at, but it is certainly, it's, I think it does belong to that type. It does have a number of minor elements in it as well. You've, you've got Zion that is, is mentioned. So it is a Zion Psalm, um, a little different than uh, some of the other Zion Psalms, but ultimately it does look to the restoration of Zion. So uh, certainly fits in there. Uh, it is a historical psalm. You you do have references here um, to events that have happened, even even though uh, they have somewhat recently happened um, for the occasion of the psalm. Still, yet uh, it is a historical psalm. And then I would also say that it is prophetic, predictive, because it is it is talking about, for instance, um, you know the daughter of Babylon in verse eight, who is to be destroyed. And so there there is a looking forward um, to the restoration of, of Zion and the destruction of um, the enemies of Israel. And so there is some prophetic predictive elements there. Now, as far as the connections that Psalm 137 has, it is it's, it's pretty closely connected with, with 135 and 136 before it. And um, that, would, that would obviously be that they all have that historical element um, in the Psalms and, and relating to the history of Israel. Um, the one difference would be um, 137 doesn't go all the way back to creation or go back to the Exodus or refer to any of that. It's just strictly focuses on the exile uh, and that destruction of Jerusalem. And so in a way, you, you could look at that group 135, 136, and 137. 137 is sort of capping off that history of Israel with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon and makes actually a pretty good, segue into the David group of psalms that we have coming up after this and and then going to the end the final um, of book five and the collection of the psalms as a whole. Um, Beyond that Psalm 137 does have connections with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and there's some verbal and conceptual links there and we'll talk about those a little more later on and if and if you think about outside of the psalm there are certainly connections there's a mention of Edom um, here in the psalm, as well as Babylon, and the the the, uh, the mention of Edom is actually a reference to um, Edom mocking and and cheering for the destruction of Jerusalem, and and essentially standing by and refusing to come to any of the aid of, of Judah, and um, you actually have the this referred to in the prophets, and you have the um, the judgment coming upon Edom that um, prophesied as well, so. Uh, Isaiah chapter 34, verses 5 to 9, Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 17, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21, Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 12 to 14, uh, verses 35, or or chapter 35, verse 15, Amos chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, and Obadiah, um, Obadiah in verses 10 to 15, and and, and Obadiah talks about, um, I believe that's the, the passage that talks about essentially them gloating over over the destruction of of Jerusalem and and the the exile and and all this that came upon them they were uh, essentially mocking and and rejoicing over those things and so you have reference to that in this psalm and so that has obviously connections with with some of the prophets outside of there and of course if you wanted to I mean you could make other connections to Edom but that's this is particularly what is referred to so I sort of kept it to that. Um, now the poetic features of this psalm primarily would be the structure and so you have Babylon in the beginning of the psalm, you have Babylon at the end of the psalm, which gives it sort of a, a circular type structure um, and that, that circular type structure, we, we've seen it before, Um, in in the Psalms and within the the Hebrew poetry and 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 the structure of the Psalms when you have that type of a structure um, what it what it emphasizes is the center and so you could maybe think of it as maybe almost like a target you know you have the uh, the circle and then the target in the center um, something like that Um, generally it's referred to as a as a uh, as a chiasm after the uh, greek letter key which looks like our x and it's it's sort of if you, you can sort of outline it and stagger it and it comes to the a point in the center and then goes back and anyway the, the the but the point is that when these are structured this way the emphasis does come in the center and so the center of the psalm is verses five and six and in verses five and six is where you get the vow to remember jerusalem and the vow to remember Jerusalem is a vow to remember God's covenant promises of restoration and the king to come to Jerusalem and judge Israel's enemies. And so that certainly is a loaded center um, of this psalm. And, and even this vow um, is sort of atypical, just like the lament is sort of an atypical lament, the vow is, is also um, atypical. And we'll talk about some of that as we look at that more. There's a little bit of repetition in the psalm. The primary repetition of the psalm would probably be remembering, uh, remembrance. And, and you'll see that term a number of times in the psalm. And, and it really is um, thematic in the psalm to remember. And we've talked about before how this referencing to remember um, typically has a covenantal association. There's There's Uh, a remembrance of promises that have been made and so those promises have not been fulfilled yet but they've been made and so they are remembered and sometimes God is is spoken of as remembering and he because he's going to fulfill those promises. Um, so remembering is, is repetitive. There's a little bit of poetic expression, um, some, some language of, of imagery uh, with the um, right hand and, and the tongue um, cleaving to the roof of the mouth and, and so on, but not really a lot, pretty, pretty straightforward in its, uh, in its language. All right, so there's nine verses here. And we want to work our way through these verses, so I'll go ahead and read these. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. So verses 1 to 4 give us this opening crisis situation. And the rivers or waters of Babylon that are referred to there would be the canals and the waterways of the city. Um, The psalmist and fellow exiles, sat down by these waters and wept, and wept at the remembrance of Zion. And so obviously this remembering, again, it's, it's a key thematic term um, in this psalm, and it, and it comes up a, f- a few times in a, in a few different ways. And really when you look at um, the expressions in these verses, we're getting the expression of alienation. And well, actually, we'll see that all, all through these four verses. Um, but we're getting an expression of alienation. And uh, the hanging up of the harps um, is suggestive of the, that they could not use them. And it, it's sort of, uh, it's not really a, a, an idiomatic expression, but it did remind me of, of sort of the idiomatic expression um, that we, you know we would talk about maybe some uh, some baseball player or something that's retiring and would talk about he's going to hang up the cleats. Uh, you know, someone may be retiring from uh, a job and they're going to hang up the the tools or or whatever it is. You know, that they they're going to hang it up. And again, it's not idiomatic in the Hebrew, but it does go quite along with the, that idiomatic expression that we would use because that's really what the intention is here. They're hanging up their harps. Um, they are they're they're not to be. Used. So it, it seems like that this group then would be, at least some of them would be of the temple singers, the, temp, the temple musicians. And so the hanging up of the instruments is, is highly suggestive of their work being over. The the temple's destroyed. It's it is no more. Uh they're not even in Jerusalem or, or Israel for that matter. They're in Babylon. And so their um sort of life's employment is is over and they cannot sing the temple songs uh, when the temple is, is no more and, and they're outside of Jerusalem. And it's uh, you know harps are typically or lyres, uh handheld Uh, type of of harps they're they're usually associated with joyful singing of praise and you can see that in places like psalm 92 verse 3 psalm 98 verse 5 psalm 108 verse 2 Um, but but here uh, the hanging up of the of the harp is rather an expression um, of sorrow and of and of lamentation and certainly not of joy and, and there's something even subtle in these verses when you think about, um, and there's, there's certainly, uh, we can pay attention to the language that is used. We get we, us, and our in, in the first four verses. Um, you know, you get I and my in verses 5 and 6. Then when you get to verses 7 to 9, it's them and they and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so the, here in, in verses 1 to 4, you get this reference to Babylon as their, and and it's it's kind of subtle but that's where they were and so in a sense you would expect them to say here here we're hanging up our our harps and here we're uh, you know weeping and and such but but it's pretty consistent that it's referred to as there um and again it's just it's it's kind of subtle but it is expressing that alienation they're they're in a place that's not theirs they're in a, in a place that they that doesn't belong to them, and they don't belong to that place. And then we get reference to these Babylonian captors who were mocking um, those of Israel, um, w- wanting them to sing the songs of Zion and 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 such. Now, the songs of Zion um, refers to the songs that were sung there in in Jerusalem and at the temple, not not necessarily. Uh, what we formally think of as Zion Psalms, uh, which we have noted an, a number of them as as we've been going through the Psalms, not necessarily those particularly, but just the songs of Zion. What are, sing the songs that that you sang um, in Jerusalem and, and temple? Sing the songs about your God and and all of these kind of things. And again, it's 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 mockingly um, it's mockingly done. And then we hit verse four, and verse four is just a a chilling realization, and so the response is, "How shall we sing the Lord or Yahweh's songs in a strange land?" So the word for strange it it means foreign, and typically it is used relative to Israel, and so when you s- you see that word popping up in the, in the Old Testament, it is a a reference to non-Israel people and non-Israel land. And so that's obviously the the reference here. We are not in the heritage of Israel. We're not in the inheritance of Israel. We're not in the promised land to Abraham. We're in a foreign land. We're in in the land of another nation. How can we sing the songs of Yahweh? Well, the, the songs of Yahweh... Uh, were those songs, obviously, for the worship of him at the temple, in Jerusalem, the, the place of his presence. They praised his deliverances of Israel. They praised his promises to Israel. They praised the king coming to Zion, all, all, of, the, all of these sort of things. And the chilling realization is, is that that that's no more. That's no more. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. We can't go up to Jerusalem um, for the feasts. We can't go up for the, to Jerusalem to uh, bring offerings to the Lord. We can't go to um, the temple to sing praises to his name. How can, we, how can we do that? How could we carry all that out in a foreign land? Well then we get to verses 5 and 6 and this is where we get the vow and it's pretty common to see some sort of vow, some sort of commitment um, in a lamentation uh, or a lament psalm uh but this is sort of a of of a vow that's um sort of mirrored. It it, it kind of comes at us reverse, because the the vow is not given in the form of I vow that I will do this. It's given in the form of um curse me if I do not do this. So it's a little different um than what we typically see. Now in this case, the vow is remembering Jerusalem. We we get it in verse 5 if i forget thee o jerusalem in verse 6 if i do not remember thee if i prefer not jerusalem so this is the vow to remember jerusalem now this this means not only remembering the city as it was the city that was destroyed but remembering god's covenant promises that Jerusalem will be restored and be the seat of his anointed son, king. And, and that promise ha- has, has you know, been uh, echoed throughout the, the Old Testament, um, throughout the prophets, even beginning in the, in the Old Covenant with the prophecies of, of them being scattered off the land and, and all of that. So that's what the, that's what the vow of remembrance is about. In, in other words, it's sort of, it's sort of given in the form of curse me, If I forget God's covenant promises. Now the singer who was employed in praising Yahweh with harp and song curses his hand if he forgets Jerusalem. And and the idea here is that his hand will become withered and useless. In other words, unable to play the instrument. And it's actually a double curse. If, if he doesn't remember Jerusalem, if he doesn't remember God's covenant, he prays that his tongue will be cursed and it will be useless like his hand. So we have one that has been employed, obviously, in the playing of the instrument and in the singing and, and, and leading of praises um, in the, the temple services to Yahweh. And he says, if I don't remember Jerusalem, Jerusalem let my hand be withered up and useless and let let the tongue just be stuck in in my mouth so that I can no longer play and sing so the vow or the commitment comes to there at the end of verse six holding Jerusalem as his greatest joy and again this is not just Jerusalem in, in history Jerusalem as it was but Jerusalem as it shall be, which still hasn't it hasn't been yet. Jerusalem as it shall be. If he doesn't hold that as his greatest joy, and obviously um, Jerusalem, it's it's also um, it's also a way of of putting a, a part for a whole. So really, the, the restoration of Jerusalem. What's well, more than just that? It's not just the city of Jerusalem um, that's that's promised restoration but it's, it's Israel, it's the land, it's, it's the people, it's, it's all of the hopes of Jerusalem through God's prom- promises, through, through his covenants, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with David, the new covenant with, with Israel and Judah. Um, it, is, it really stands for all of that. And then we get to verse 7, and we get sort of the proper imprecation uh, that is against Edom in, in verse 7. And again, we get that word, remember, O Lord, remember. And again, what that, that tells us that it's based on something. It's grounded in something. And God has already spoken through his prophets that he is going to bring judgment against Edom. And so remember, remember their actions and, and remember um, your words. Now, Edom was the nation descended from Esau. Edom was the the perennial uh, enemies and troublemakers for Israel. Um, And in particular, the day of Jerusalem that is referred to here refers to the judgment on Jerusalem, refers to its destruction. And so, again, their actions, the the, uh, people of Edom, their actions, the mocking and the cheering, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and, and it's condemned and and their judgment is prophesied and we talked about some of those places um, where that occurs so the the petition here is to remember and and as always again based on god's promises remember your words spoken through your prophets and then we get to verses eight and nine that close this psalm and again it's 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 imprecations but um, for one thing, it's in a very unique form. And for another thing, it's, it's, also, um, it's also unique in just how startling the imprecation is here, uh, particularly in verse 9. So essentially what you get is you get a double blessing. And you see the word is translated happy in verse 8 and in verse 9. And the judgment or the destruction of Babylon, which is also something that is prophesied. So here the blessing or the praise is pronounced on the one who brings that judgment. Again, so it's, it's doubled here. The one who brings that judgment, the one who brings the destruction of Babylon, and the one um, who um, breaks their, their children in pieces on, on the rocks. Um, so the idea also of reward is shown up here, which means it's the idea of a repayment. In other words, it's something that's due. It's, it's something that's owed. It's something that they have earned. Um, it, it's it's uh, an avenging in that sense. Now, uh, obviously, children being broken to pieces against rocks is a very, very startling image and a very chilling image um it is it's one of those passages that um where many people begin to apologize for the bible um I've, you can even find in commentaries people arguing this this just shouldn't even be in the bible um and and on and on and on but but you have to understand that it, it's actually something that was prophesied to happen um and, and it was prophesied to happen to Israel in their judgment. So just one passage here, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 12 to 14. And this is, this is before the destruction of, of Jerusalem occurred. And it is a message that goes out to Judah and to Israel of, of this coming judgment on them. And here's just a portion of it. Um, Therefore thou shalt speak unto them, that's Israel and Judah, this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness, And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. So this was prophesied to take place in this destruction of Jerusalem, which it did. And so here the the prayer is, the imprecation is going out for this to be repaid um, to the enemies of Israel something that, so if, if we, there's a couple of things about this. And again, it's a very, very startling image. But I think that we can at least gain some perspective on it uh, by realizing a couple of things. And number one is, is that it, it's the wrath of God. It's, it's God's wrath. And there's, there's nothing light and trivial and unshocking about God's wrath and there's also nothing inconsistent about it and and, and again we could turn we turn to the place in Jeremiah uh, we can we can turn uh, back into um, the books of Moses where uh, God speaks of himself as being merciful and compassionate and and all of those things and but then also goes to say that he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on who? On their children so again this is this is the wrath of god and it, it certainly um is uh it is shocking it is it is chilling and the second thing that that we need to understand about it to help us gain some perspective is the significance of this what's the significance of this particular act well, the slaughtering of the children of a nation meant cutting that nation off. In other words, ending their generations. It is the, the attempt to bring to an end an entire nation of people. And so it, it wasn't uncommon, and you can read actually places where it happened in, in Israel's history and other places in the Old Testament and it wasn't that uncommon for nations to invade another nation and them to take, uh, oftentimes they would seek to kill all the men and they might take the, the women as slaves, as captives, and, and they would kill all the children. And why would they do that? Well, on the one hand, it's, it's cruel. Yes, it's, it's cruelty. Um, it's wickedness. Um, it's depravity. I mean, there's a lot of things you could say about it, But the significance of that act was was saying, we're cutting this people off. And it was sort of, it was ending their opportunity of revenge. These children are not going to grow up and attack us, you know, grow up and and seek to get revenge for this action. So the significance of the act is the cutting off of, of a nation. It's ending the generation's Of a nation, and so this is exactly though what will happen to nations who reject God and do not repent of their wickedness. They will be cut off. It's just we just see it presented in other ways. Um, We see it. You know they'll they'll be cut off. Their you know their generations will come to an end. There's various ways we see it referred to. And so even though this might be shocking, and it is, I mean, when we read it, it's certainly a shocking image for us to read, but yet the the Bible alludes to this type of judgment in numerous ways, and it's talking about all the same things. So let's go to interpretation, and we'll have just a little bit more to say about that as we go through interpretation. Well, so Psalm 137 certainly teaches the wrath of, field judgment of God this is this is not a prayer asking God may may the roofs of their houses leak ruin their ruin their, may their harvest be eaten up by locusts these are again this is this is the wrath of God imprecations are um, the prayer of curses up on someone again. It's not light. It's not trivial. These are prayers for the wrath of God, for the condemnation, damnation um, of people. Now, if we actually pay attention to God's word, we see just a glimpse of His wrath and why it is so terrible. And the, we also have to think back to the greatest display of His wrath, which happened on the cross that was poured out upon his own son. So again, the wrath of God is not something light and and trivial and should not be taken lightly. And though God brought judgment on Israel for their sins, and he did, he did not destroy them completely or cut them off from the earth. He preserved a remnant, And, and we read about that in numerous places in the Old Testament, and even Paul talks about it in the New Testament as well. So when we look at this psalm and we see this continual theme of remembering, it's it's a petition for these promised judgments because just like this judgment against Israel and Judah was prophesied and promised, judgment against these enemies and these enemy nations has also been prophesied and promised. And that is what is being prayed for um, in this psalm. Now, the messianic hope of this psalm is particularly seen through this double-blessed one who will bring that judgment. So when you look again at verses 8 and 9, and you get this repeated word, it's translated happy here, it's translated blessed in other places, and in fact it's translated blessed in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2. And so the blessed man, as you read Psalm 1 forward into, to the end of Psalm 2, the blessed man is the anointed son king who will come to Zion to reign and will break the rebel nations in pieces. And in fact, the word, the very word that is used for dashing these children against the rocks, the word it means to break them in pieces, that word is only used one other time in the Psalms. And it is in Psalm 2 and verse number 9. And it is when the anointed son king comes to this earth and breaks the rebellious nations into pieces with a rod of iron. So again, it's talking about the same thing. Some of the imagery that that, that's used to express it is a little different from here to there. It's talking about the same thing. And, and when, when uh, the Lord um, taught his disciples to pray and to pray, thy kingdom come, we don't generally think about it, but the coming of the king means the coming of the wrath of God in the day of the Lord and his breaking these enemy nations into pieces. So verses 8 and 9 do capture the coming of the king and his wrath that will be poured out in the day of the Lord. And again, we read about that particularly in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes to the earth at the end of the tribulation and and pours out his, his wrath on all of those enemy nations that are gathered against Israel in an attempt to destroy them. All right, so let's go to application. I have one main application here. So uh, as modern readers reading Psalm 137, understanding this psalm I think does help us understand something about our hopes when we experience devastation. Now obviously we could look at this psalm and and all these things is prophesied for centuries and it comes to pass and judgment that comes on Israel and it was due to them because they, they did not um, they did not repent. They did not commit themselves to the Lord. They did not keep his word. But still yet, you had that faithful remnant. And when you read the book of Lamentations, for instance, that is a, that is a book that seems like it is written in a state of complete shock. And, and I mean that like, you know, sort of like medically, phys- physiologically speaking, a state of shock. Um. I mean, Jeremiah, who prophesied, one of the ones who prophesied such destruction, was still in a state of shock at seeing it come to pass. So, even the faithful here, and think about what's being said in this psalm, I will not forget Jerusalem. I'm in the land of Babylon, and and. History tells us, and as you read, go on reading in, in the Bible about the exile, there's what, about 50,000 or something Jews that returned from Babylon. The majority of them staying there or in amongst other nations they had been dispersed to. So the faithful experienced a tremendous devastation, so much so that they're hanging up their harps. But the psalmist here is, is vowing... I will not forget Jerusalem, and again, I will not forget what is promised to Jerusalem, to Israel, to the land, to the to the people. And so, we certainly can and do at times experience devastations—not this exactly—but we certainly do experience devastations, and and it's sort of like the choice that the exiles in um, in in Babylon had. Am I just going to settle in here and enjoy um, whatever, you know, comforts I can? Or am I going to remember Zion? And so that's something of of a choice that we face as well. And so the psalmist here looked to the Lord, knowing that he is going to set everything right one day. You know the the psalmist here, even in praying these imprecations, he's not picking up a sword and and, and trying to charge into the palace in Babylon and and assassinate um, Nebuchadnezzar at at the time. You know he's not trying to fight the Babylonians. He's not. He, he's he's just sitting down by the waters of Babylon, crying, weeping, lamenting, remembering Jerusalem as it was and what happened to Jerusalem. And then remembering the promises of what Jerusalem is to be, so I do think it does help us gain some orientation um, when we face devastation, when we face disappointment, when things just don't seem to 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 work out they don't they don't seem to you know I, I don't know if you've ever been, but I've been driven to question and think you know lord i th- I think I mean I've endeavored to do everything right here and you know this all just turned to ashes. And so what now? Well, I think a psalm like this does does help us in in those kind of in those kind of of situations that we face.